Hey, before we get started, I want to remind you that Truce is listener-supported. If you want to be a part of this one-of-a-kind show that asks big questions in an approachable way, become a patron. For just $5 a month, you can help me tell big stories like this upcoming season on the history of fundamentalism. And you'll get access to bonus materials. That's all at patreon.com slash trucepodcast. That's patreon.com slash trucepodcast. Hello, dear listeners. We're at the end of season three, which has been an exploration of how the rise of communism in Russia impacted the American Christian church. As part of that, I'm presenting a series of mini-episodes to highlight themes from the season. This is takeaway number three, treat labor well. In 1965, General Motors had 49.5% of the market share. That means if you bought a new car! Sorry, I just really wanted to do that. If you bought a, um, <clears throat> a fresh-off-the-factory-line vehicle in the U.S. in 1965, it was almost a 50-50 chance that it was manufactured by General Motors across all their brands. That's astonishing when you stop to think about it. One American auto manufacturer had nearly 50% of the market share. By contrast, Volkswagen, the largest foreign automaker at the time, controlled just 3.01% of the American market. Toyota barely registered at 0.06%. It was really good to be GM for a long time. They were on top for decades through the 1970s. Even into the 80s, they were still above 40%, but declining. Into the 90s and 2000s, things got rough for GM. In 2016, they controlled just 17.03% of the market share. Now, talk about a fall from grace, from half the market to just 17%. So, what happened? What took this giant corporation that employed huge numbers of people and humbled them in just a few years? That's our mini-story today. GM, quality control, labor unions, and what they have to tell us about modern Christianity. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause in the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. 
In the 1980s, still at a high point for GM, the company started to experience trouble. First of all, their cars were terrible. They broke down easily. They were inefficient with fuel, and the oil embargoes of the 1970s were still fresh in people's minds. You should look up some pictures of this at some point. There were lines around the block with people waiting their turn to buy gasoline. Customers with big glugging engines from GM required more fuel than the little Japanese models. So people were beginning to rethink their love affair with giant vehicles and opt for smaller cars that GM didn't really make. Reason number one for the decline of GM? Poor fuel efficiency. The second reason GM lost its market share, GM was controlled by unions. I should say, before I get too far into the story, that I did a series several months ago about Christian involvement in unions during the late 1800s. This episode is the counterbalance, where we went from one extreme where corporations held limitless control to when unions held limitless control. When I say unions controlled the plants, I mean nothing got done without union approval. Like I said, this is a story of extremes. And the extreme version of unionization means it was really hard to fire someone, even if they did a shoddy job or engaged in straight-up criminal activities. The factories themselves were in disorder. You could easily buy drugs there, gamble, or even visit a prostitute at work. Again, there was little management could do because they could get hit with penalties if they fired a union worker. Even if someone just didn't show up, it was nearly impossible to fire them. So, absenteeism was rampant. The third reason is that production on the lines was grossly inefficient, in part because people were incentivized to be inefficient. I'll do my best to explain it. People working on the lines were specialized. Let's say you were in charge of bolting in the seats. Lift in the seats, tighten four bolts. Lift in the seat, tighten four bolts. Lift in the seat, all day long. The car moves down the line to the next station. That was your job. You couldn't touch the muffler or the steering wheel, the tires or the brakes. Those belonged to other people. You just touched the seats. So, if something went wrong up the line from you... Hey, can I get some help up here? Union rules prevented you from helping. Because that meant doing work other than bolting in the seat. Lift in the seat, tighten four bolts. So, there was no reason to be motivated to work harder than you had to. No incentive to help someone else. But there was plenty of incentive to do a bad job. I mean, you're there installing seats bolt after bolt, day after day, and the assembly line stops moving. There isn't another car coming your way. Turns out something went wrong with the chassis up the chain from you, and it's going to take them a while to fix it. So you're a seat bolter, and there are no more seats to bolt in. In a normal job, you might think about, I don't know, sweeping the floors or tidying up collapsing boxes, or learning a new station. But all that stuff is someone else's job. You literally were not allowed to do any of that stuff. So, you waited. You'd sit there, 
running out the clock. If it took two minutes or a whole day, you were paid to stand by. Yes, it was totally inefficient. The system was designed to do good by protecting people's jobs, to keep the manufacturers from cutting back on staffing, overworking employees. But it also incentivized people to let things go wrong or to work slowly, because that meant more time to read or hang out or really do whatever you wanted to. What if you were angry at something your supervisor said or did, or at your corporate bosses? You wanted to get even. Maybe you'd forget to put bolts in a seat here and there, and the car just rolled off the line with no place to sit. Now it was just a useless car that had to get repaired, even though it was brand new. I mean, what's your boss gonna do, fire you? No. Remember, because of union rules, it was virtually impossible to get fired. If you wanted to upset your supervisors, you just didn't do your job. Cars routinely came off the assembly line missing parts or poorly put together. No surprise, they were inefficient, unreliable. The workforce was unmotivated and entrenched. Meanwhile, imported cars didn't have to play by the same rules. They cost more because of import fees and buying one wasn't an act of patriotism, but at least they worked. So customers left GM and went to foreign cars. Poor quality, an unmotivated workforce, and an overbearing union. These are just some of the reasons GM lost market share in the 1980s and 90s. I first learned about the problems at GM when I read a book called Rude Awakening, The Rise, Fall, and Struggle for Recovery of General Motors by Mary Ann Keller. In it, she details the problems encountered by GM and other manufacturers who struggle to maintain their market share in a world becoming more global. It's a nerdy book, and I really loved it, and it's been on my mind a lot in the last few months. Because earlier this season, I did a two-part series about how Christians were involved in creating labor unions in the United States. Those were, believe it or not, the episodes where I got the most unpleasant responses this whole season. Because many American Christians are conservative, and conservatives tend to be anti-union. When many of us think of unions, we think of what I've just described, the American auto industry in the 1980s. That means, depending on your perspective, either cushy, high-paying jobs like your dad and his dad before him, or total waste and inefficiency. We tend to drift towards one of two grossly different understandings of labor. If we believe it's corporations that are the enemy, we talk about the 1800s and people having limbs cut off in meatpacking houses. If we think labor is the issue, then we bring up GM. Somehow, many of us pick a team and stick with it without really questioning if that extreme view is realistic or even helpful. If I've said it once, I've said it a hundred times. Humans are bad at nuance. We're really terrible at understanding that both corporate greed and union strangleholds hurt people. This keeps us from having good conversations surrounding labor, work, minimum wages, OSHA regulations, and more. Because it has to be one or the other. At least, we think it does. So you're probably asking yourself, what does this have to do with Christianity? 
These extreme opinions keep Christians like me from understanding poverty, how people make a living today, and social pressures that help some people rise while others fall. We revert to extremes because they are cut and dry, easy to understand. They don't require work or discernment. Either poor people are lazy or it's the system that keeps people down. One or the other. When in reality, it can be some combination of both. One of the major takeaways of this season should be that labor relations matter. I know that probably no other Christian program talks about it, but I think it's true. Labor movements literally shaped all of human history. In my opinion, none of the events I've covered this season would have happened if the leaders in the late 18 and early 1900s had treated workers well. If Tsar Nicholas had simply paid attention to everyday working people, communist Russia may never have been a thing. If he'd made laws protecting workers and kept the country out of the unpopular Russo-Japanese war as the people demanded, he and his family may never have been killed. There might have been no Red Scare, no McCarthy hearings, no Bay of Pigs. Communist Russia might have left Afghanistan alone, and the U.S. may never have gotten involved there. Truly, the world would be a different place. The United States, in turn, may never have built up its nuclear arsenal to the degree that it has, or tied ceremonial deism to capitalism in this country. All if the leaders of one country had simply responded well to the pleas of the common laborer. By doing the right thing early, we can prevent an overreaction later on. We see this in so many of our major issues today. If we'd done the right thing early, issues would not have gotten out of control in the long run. The bloated unionization in the American auto industry didn't come out of nowhere. It was built up over time in response to corporations failing to do the right thing. One can argue that GM's fall from grace wasn't rooted in the 1980s, but in the 1880s, where big companies refused to create safe, clean factories with living wages. If they'd simply done the right thing early, there may not have been a need for unions in the first place. There would have been no need for rules about job security if people knew their jobs were secure. No need for specialization if companies hadn't overworked people for generations. One can argue that one extreme created the other. I know this middle ground approach goes against our desire to be extremists today, but I think that Christians are called to constantly hold two realities in tension. I mean, it's all over the Bible. Here are some examples of things that seem contradictory. The good book tells us that a worker is worthy of their wages. That we should not muzzle an ox while it is working because the ox deserves to eat when it's harvesting. The Bible also says that if you don't work, you don't eat, which sounds very definitive as well. Does that mean I can just ignore the poor who don't work? No. The Bible also clearly says that we should look after the poor, widows, and orphans. It says that if someone sues you for your shirt, give them your coat as well. It's not one thing or the other, it's all of that at the same time. There is a push and a pull there. We want to make it an either-or, 
but the Bible won't let us. We have to encourage people to work while also being generous. If labor relations matter, if they change the course of history, each of us should be paying attention. Do your employees make a living wage? Can they raise their families? Is the work environment safe? What happens if they get sick or injured? Do you provide them with the tools to weather any storm? Do you treat them with the respect that Christ would give them? At the same time, as workers, we are to work as if we are working for Christ himself. Respect our supervisors. Stand up for justice. Put in our time. Do a good job. If I'm being honest, it bothers me that some of my own friends stopped listening to the show because of those episodes about unions. I mean, it really does hurt. Thinking about it for all these months, talking to them, I believe it's because we have this either-or understanding of labor. We have this view of the average worker being like that fictional seat bolter at GM in the 1980s. Lazy, looking for a handout. I think that view is toxic, too extreme. It impacts how we see the poor who come to our churches looking for help, how we treat those who work for us. Yes, there are people who take advantage of the system, but it's unfair to think that everyone is like that. Here is the takeaway of this mini-episode. If we want to increase the market share of the Christian church in American life, perhaps we should start in our workplaces, where we spend so much of our time. Embrace the tension that the Bible causes to both work hard and live generously. In my opinion, it's much more helpful to avoid extremist ideas, even though they are easy. Do the right thing early on, and maybe, just maybe, we can assemble a better world. Before we go, I should say that GM has turned around a lot since the 1980s. The book I talked about today was Rude Awakening, The Rise, Fall, and Struggle for Recovery of General Motors by Marianne Keller. Another great resource is the book Crash Course, The American Automobile Industry's Road to Bankruptcy and Bailout and Beyond by Paul Ingracia. Also, if anyone from GM is listening and wants to sue me, I myself own a GM car and it has given me very few problems. This is just one of several mini-episodes exploring themes from Season 3. Feel free to go back and listen to all the episodes for more context. Truce is listener-supported. You can give to help me out at trucepodcast.com. There you'll also learn about my movies, Bringing Up Bobby and Between the Walls, and my time travel novel, Cradle Robber. God willing, I'll be back in a few days with more. I'm Chris Sterren, and this is Truce.